Chapter 8 of Wandle the Invader by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wandle the Invader. Chapter 8. It seemed that the small room had a very faint radiance showing through my visor pane. Narrow enclosing walls were visible. It was a triangular shaped space, fifteen feet or so down one side, with a concave ceiling overhead. I was lying on the floor. The darkness at first had been impenetrable. The figures which had flung me down and seized my knife were gone. I had not seen them, nor where they went. For a moment I lay cushioned by my bloated suit. When I struggled to my feet I was almost weightless. The movement of getting upright flung me upward as though I were a tossed feather. My helmet struck the metal ceiling, so sharp a blow that I feared for an instant I had smashed the helmet. From the ceiling, with flailing arms and legs, I sank back to the grid floor, and in a moment I was able to stand upright with so slight a feeling of weight that I could have been a bit of thistle ready to blow away in the least wind. There was, as I stood there balancing myself, a queer feeling of triumph within me, a triumphant hope, for coming down in the ship's capacious funnel, larger than it had seemed from a distance, I had seen what appeared to be a small projectile resting in some strange landing gear. The disc bearing me had settled on a stage alongside it. Was that the projectile from Earth? A growing air pressure was around me. The tiny Arentz dials within my helmet had been immovable, but now they were showing outside pressure. I stood waiting. Whatever sounds were here I could not tell. Then presently the dials stopped. They registered seventeen pounds whatever that might mean here. I loosed the helmet and took it off. With the first gasping breath my senses reeled. I sank to the floor, and though I tried to replace the helmet, it was too late. My thoughts were fading. A strange chemical odor was in my nostrils. It was like breathing a thin, perfumed water. The drifting away was pleasant. Tortured dreams came with my awakening. I found myself in the same dim room upon the floor. I could breathe better now, and in a few more hours the strangeness had almost gone. I found now that I was not injured, but I was ravenously hungry. Again, gingerly as before, I stood up and slid my spacesuit from me, and now I was aware of movement and sound. The floor-grid vibrations were apparent, and there was a dim, distant, tiny throbbing. It was much like the interior of the Comet Terra while in flight. And there were other sounds, indescribably faint yet strangely clear. I thought they might be distant voices. I took a cautious step. I could see a dim blank wall nearby with what seemed a bowl-like article of furniture on the floor against the wall. For all my caution I sailed upward, but this time I held my balance and I found that, with my negligible weight, I could almost swim in this strange air. I hit the wall and slid slowly down it to the floor again, like a man sinking to the bottom of a tank. It suddenly occurred to me to put my ear against the wall. At once the sounds all became incredibly louder. It was a confusion of sound, the mechanisms of the vessel, some of which I thought I could identify, and some not the strange swish and thump of what might have been people moving, and there were voices. 
The voices seemed mingled babble coming from everywhere. The timbre of the sound was very strange. It held no suggestion of how far away from me the voices might be. There were so many of them I could only think they were scattered about the ship, and yet they all seemed together. After a moment the blend was less confusing. Again, very strangely, my hearing seemed able to separate one from the other. I was to learn that the atmosphere handled sound vibrations differently from that of Earth. Voices had a muffled tone, as though they were smothered. There was undoubtedly a vibrational distortion, and a sound wave speed slower than Earth's normal pressure rate of 1,050 feet a second, perhaps as slow as 700. Yet sounds remained audible over longer distances than on Earth. In this instance now, as I listened with my ear to the wall of the ship, I was hearing all its sounds picked up and carried by the metal. Now I heard a strange tongue. Two types of voices, slow, measured, carefully intoned phrases, and voices of a curiously sepulchral, hollow sound. My mind went back to the Red Spark restaurant room. And suddenly I realized that amid the babble I was hearing English. A man's voice talking English. I caught very clearly the phrase, Master, yes, she means well. Can you not see it? Molo's voice. Then the girls must be here also. Another voice. I am not sure. Perhaps. The great intelligence will talk with her when we are arrived. It was the slow, measured voice of one of the brains. When will that be? Pretty soon now, won't it, Molo? Venza! A great wave of thankfulness swept me, and then I heard Anita. Your two captives, where are they? You're not going to kill them, are you? No, said Molo. Perhaps not. No one has inspected the new one yet. The other is being cared for. The great intelligence will question him when we arrive. We are arriving, said Venza. That's your world, Wandel, down there, isn't it? Yes, we are dropping fast. The voice of the brain. Come, Wick. The instruments are showing events on our captured worlds. Take me to watch. I am tired of movement. Yes, master. It seemed that the brain was being carried away. Molo and the two girls were being left alone. I had thought at first that they were in the adjacent room to me, but they could have been far distant. They had mentioned two captives. One, obviously, was myself. Was the other Snap? Come, Molo was saying, stand here with me and we will watch this world. Not mine, Venza Chia, as you just called it, but my adopted world. And it will be yours until we rule the new Mars. I heard them moving to gaze through the window port. Then came Anita's voice. If it's anything like this ship, it will be very strange. Strange indeed, little dove. I was there only once, a month ago, and for a few hours only. The great intelligence, as they call him, talked with me, absorbing my knowledge. They called it that. And he was much impressed by me, and made very wonderful promises in exchange for my fidelity, and for my sister, too. I learned further how Molo and Mika became identified with the Wandalites, it was as we had suspected. "'You will rule Mars?' Venza was saying. 
When this is over, you mean you will really be given Mars to rule? I would rather live on the earth, said Anita. There was a young man there. He will not be there much longer, Molo laughed. You are very lucky that I fancy you. Lucky indeed, Venza echoed. No death for me. I'm too young. But all those millions dead, it seems so terrible. It is for them. Mola was in high good humor, pleased with himself and with these girls. See down there, that blurring is the heavy air. We're almost down into it now. I heard the sound of someone joining them, and then the hollow voice again. Molo, bad tidings come from Mars. One of the masters was captured there in Ferrok Shon. They tortured him as they did the one on earth, but he did not die unyielding. He spoke and told our plans. Ha! Did I not advise you to keep those helpless things on Wandel? But it is done now. The worlds know our purpose. They are preparing spaceships. Already some are rising from Ferrok Shan, from Grebar, and from Greater New York. We knew they were doing that. But now they know our purpose. The Master Intelligence fears that they will come raiding Wandel. Our vessels are being made ready to go out and repel them. The hollow voice ceased. "'Your purpose discovered?' asked Anita. "'What does that mean? Won't you tell us now? Twin queens for your future Mars, and you treat us like children.' "'That light-beam he so cleverly planted in Greater New York,' Venza hinted. "'Yes, I will tell you. Without me in New York, and my men who went with these Wandalites to Ferrak Shan and Grebar, the vital gravity-beams could never successfully have been planted. The apparatus was complicated. You saw it. You saw the labor I had in making the contact. But what are the light-beams for?' I listened, breathless, as he told them. "'The electronic beams could not be destroyed. A disintegration of the rock atoms had been set up. With each rotation of the earth it was sweeping the sky. From a great control station, Wandel was flinging attraction gravity upon that beam, using it as a monstrous lever upon the rotation of Earth. With every daily passage now, the force was being exerted. The rotation was slowing. In a few days, it would stop, with the end of the beam drawn to Wandel and held there. And the beams from Grebar and Ferrak Shan were the same. Three giant chains— then Wandel, traveling of its own gravitational volition, would withdraw from our solar system. The gravitational chains would pull the Earth, Venus, and Mars after it. Titanic tow-ropes. The destruction, not of our worlds, but of all life upon them, for the cold of interstellar space would leave no living organism. Three dead worlds. Wandel would draw them to her own sun and then free them, send them, with new orbits, around the distant blazing star. Three new worlds brought home triumphantly by Wandel to join the little family of inhabited planets revolving around this other sun. Three fair and lovely worlds, warmed back by the other sunlight to be green mansions untenanted, ready to receive the new beings who would come and possess them. End of chapter 8